From the island in the desert, it's life punctuated at Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes from Boise, Idaho. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. This show celebrates our eighth birthday, and to start things off, we have special guest, co-founder of Story Story Night, Clay Morgan, telling us about the very beginnings of our program. Then our featured storytellers exclaim themselves during our final show of a season inspired by punctuation marks. Held on April 24th, 2018, our two storytellers were inspired by the question mark, featuring Cameron Grunland and Theory Myo Jiao Mint. Plus, the slammer story by David Lee from Kama turned into a question in the form of a mini-musical by Lita Harris-Newstetter, Thomas Paul, and J. Todd Dunnigan. Now for stories and music with a real point. It's story time. Please welcome Clay Morgan. I want to start this with that question mark. You know, the, the, the theme of stories that what's happening to me. I'm going to tell a little anecdote about that and then an anecdote about how stories help us figure out what we should do in a, in a tough situation. And they go into the beginning of Story Story Night and then end with one of my favorite, er, very, very early Story Story Night stories. So I was a smoke jumper, and uh, we would go up uh, from McCall up to Alaska in the spring and jump uh, parachute to fires, wildfires in the tundra up there in Alaska. And one day we jumped this fire, and there was this big ground wind blowing. We hit the ground, the wind caught our parachutes and dragged us through the tundra over the tussocks, and we were just bouncing and bouncing and bouncing. Finally stopped. Finally I got my parachute released and I stood up and looked down and my white jumpsuit was covered with purple streaks. I had landed in a blueberry bog. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is good, but I better look around because there might be bears, right? I looked around and I looked, something smelled kind of funny and I looked down again and with those purple streaks were always this kind of dark black brown streaks filled with half digested Blueberries. It, I, I had been dragged through bear poop. For, and so I looked around again, didn't see any. We fought the fire, we got it corralled. We'd been working all day. I really wanted to see a grizzly bear, so I volunteered to take the first watch and let everybody else go to sleep. So they, they got in their sleep bags underneath uh, their parachutes to keep the mosquitoes off. And I sat there with my back against some equipment and watched for bears. And very quickly, because I was tired, I, I fell asleep. <laughs> and this is what I heard. <laughs> and I wake up and, and I jump up and I'm looking around and I hear <laughs> It's inside my head and I'm jumping around. It's just the worst thing. Worst thing ever, it's like uh, Westworld if one of those robots, you know, go crazy and their things, and I'm jumping around and the other guys are jumping up and looking around for the bears and I, I don't know what's going on and I realize something's in my ear against my eardrum going, <laughs> it's a mosquito. 
It's like those earwigs that would climb into your brain, if you remember that story. And I, I'm, I'm actually freaking. And I, I look around, look down, and, and there's my canteen full of, of that powdery lemonade, you know, that you get when you go hiking, yellow. And I go like this, and I fill my ear full of lemonade, and it goes, so that's the what's happening to me theme. They all these have themes, like tonight the question mark. Question mark, what's happening to me? And the next one is what, you know, what do we do? Sometimes a story will help us know what we should do. We're back in Idaho and we're, we jumped a fire on the Salmon River Breaks about 100 miles north of here landed on this really neat ridge that was kind of a rhinoceros horn ridge over the, the Salmon River. And they were fighting a fire at the bottom of, of the mountain, down at the river, and uh, they wanted us to build a fire line down to the river. But they called us up and they said, well, it seems like the weather's going to be changing, and it seems like the fire is going to be burning up to that rhinoceros nose that you're on up there and you can't come down. So we want you to build a helispot so we can come send up a helicopter and pick you up. Well, it was a rhinoceros horn, which is difficult, and along the top of it was this granite reef about this tall, about this wide of, you know, of rock that was in the way of a helicopter being able to land. And we're standing there going, good God, they're gonna, you know, we're gonna burn up. What are we gonna do? And, and one of the smoke jumpers, Tom Koyama, who grew up in Ontario, Oregon, said, hey, do you guys remember? There was a Robin Hood story, and they had to get in his Sheriff John's castle or something, and they made a battering ram out of a log, and they went through the door. And there was, there was a, a dead tree there, a snag, and they said, he said, let's cut this down and let's see if we can break down this reef. And we did. We cut down that, that tree and made a log about eight feet long, and the four of us slammed it against this granite reef and slowly broke it into pieces about this big, and we built the most beautiful hellespot you could think of out of granite. And they call us up from the bottom and say, the wind has changed. Uh, you don't need to do that. <laughs> we've, we've corralled the fire. We want you to just walk down to the bottom. <laughs> and, but regardless, it, you know, the story might have saved our lives. So those are the, those are the two quick anecdotes for that. And now, now to story, story night. Years after I was a, a smoke jumper, um, I was going to work for Boise State, and President Bob Custer was asking me, what do you want to do? And I was coming back, and I said, well, you know, I taught creative writing and literature when I was there 10 years ago. You know, that's a great job. I'd like to do that. And he said, what do you want to really do? I'll give you a week. And so a week later, I came back, and I said, I would like to help make Boise and Boise State a center for story where people pay attention to story and understand or realize what story means in our lives. And Bob Custer said, do it. So one day I was thinking about what to do and I thought, 
well, let's have a storytelling evening for the community. And I called Paul Schaefer at the Cabin Literary Center, and I told him this idea, and I said, I have a great name for it, Story, Story, Night. And he says, that's amazing, because two days ago, two young ladies, Hollis Welsh and Jessica Holmes were here. They want to do the same thing. And so the four of us got together. We, all four of us had different ideas, but every idea, even though it was different, worked at the right time. The first thing we did was uh, we had a storyteller evening at the Sunray Cafe in Hyde Park. And so we asked friends to tell stories. We asked friends to come and listen. Sunray Cafe would provide beer and wine and burgers and all of that if, if people bought them. And, and we had this beautiful, very small uh, storytelling telling evening. Hollis Welsh told one story ab about, um, um, about an acting thing that went really weird. She's, an act she's a really good actress. And then Steve Flick told a story about getting a heart attack and denying it to himself as the symptoms got worse and worse. And Steve had this image that he told us. He compared his chest to a hive of angry bees. And that image has stayed with me ever since. And then Phil Atlickson, who teaches at Boise State, told a story about living in Seattle and always wanting to, to ski Mount Baker. And um, I mean, this is great, this big volcano. He talked to a guy, a friend, to going to ski it with him and realized that his friend wasn't that good a skier. So they get there, this, this ski trip of, of a lifetime, and on the first run down the mountain, his friend breaks his leg. So Phil's on, his, on the ski trip of a lifetime and his friend's broken a leg. What do you do? Well, you leave your friend in the lodge where you ski the rest of the day. <laughs> and he said it was this exquisite balance between guilt and joy. <laughs> and that the drive, he drove his friend back down to a clinic in Seattle, the drive back that night was exquisitely quiet as he was driving. And so, so we worked on this, and, and Jessica, who is here tonight, Jessica, hello, there she is in the back. She's the best. Um, each of us, you know, had, had different strengths in, in what we could do. And, and we, we thought, you know, what could, what could stories be about? Could they be about question mark? Could they be about guilt? Could they be about being caught? Could they be about being busted? Could they, and the, these, these wonderful things, but we had to have a bigger venue. We had to have more than 40 people show up. And they uh, uh, found the Linen uh, Building in the Linen District, and it was a palace. And how could we pay for it? But David Hale worked with Jessica, and, and, and it was like this. It was, it was just this gorgeous, gorgeous thing. And um, from then on, to, in, you know, to me, it, it was just wonderful. And um, 
and those early uh, linen building stories. There was one that I, when I share them with people, this is the one I share. Uh, her name was Charmaine, and is, if, the, if there's a theme there, it's who am I? Where did I come from? And Charmaine told this story, and she said, she began the story, I was raised by carnies. My mom and my dad drove us around in a trailer from town to town. Dad, you know, was the, the guy who did everything in the carnival. Mom was the, the woman who wore fishnet stockings in red and black and, you know, did all of that to, to show the, the, the different shows at the carnival. But Charmaine said, but I never felt like I fit in. Who am I? Where did I come from? And she felt so out of it in that, in, in, in that society that she, that she started reading Sears Roebuck catalogs and she started choosing family members out of the models <laughs> and she started choosing birthday dates and, and birthday gifts from the catalog to give to the different people. And she built this whole family that, that sustained her as she was growing up. Years later, she was in college, she got engaged to get married, and her fiance, her, her young man said, oh, I've got so many family members I've got to call tonight, so many. And Charmaine said, I didn't have anybody to call. My dad had died, my mom was in an alcoholic hospital, you know, she was having problems. Who could I call? And she remembered an uncle, so she called the uncle, and the uncle said, oh, you know, they're not your real parents. You just showed up one day. And so Charmaine, this young lady, got a private detective to find out who she was. And within a week, she said, she, he called back, gave her a phone number, she called it, and the person answering that phone sounded just like herself. And she had brothers, sisters, cousins, and then she said, and my mom is here with us tonight. And she had found her mom that way, and her mom was in the Story Story Night um, audience. So, I mean, the way I look at things, um, Stories are lives told over and over. Lives are stories told over and over. The best ones keep getting better. And here we are tonight. Thank you very much. Please welcome Cameron Grindle. Well, I will say every time I've been a storyteller before, it's been a lot easier when it's dark out there. I was not expecting being able to see everyone, but here we are. Uh, so yeah, my, my question mark story stems from uh, the summer I turned 23. Uh, my brother asked me a very simple question and called me up and said, do you want to move to Boise for the summer? I've got a job that you can do. I had nothing going on. I was working a graveyard shift, which is... Never, never a great experience. And so I think it was probably about a week later, uh, it didn't take me much time, 
to pack up everything I belonged into a 1990 Mazda RX-7, which if anyone knows what that is, it's a little tiny sports car. It's, it's kind of set my entire life up to that point in time fit in this car. And uh, so I was living in Portland and drove over to here and we were supposed to have this big party when I got here. My brother wanted to introduce me to a bunch of friends. I got a fairly late start and showed up right as the party was ending and everyone was leaving, which is probably a bit of a metaphor. And, uh, and so, you know, that, that was my introduction to Boise. And it was, it was you know, just for the summer. It was, it was a very laid back, 23 years old, not much going on, just kind of enjoying a summer away from home in a lot of ways, and uh, met a great group of friends that my brother worked with, and we were just thick as thieves that whole summer. Uh, I, I did a lot of drinking that summer. It was my first real summer of, of just having that group, and uh, one of the guys, Clint, uh, turned 21 on a Wednesday in September. And so we waited until that Friday to go out and, and celebrate it correctly, because you don't go out on a Wednesday. So we waited till Friday, we went out, and uh, our goal was just to hit as many bars as we possibly could. And every time we went, one of the guys got to buy whatever drink that we were all going to drink and just introduce Clint to as many alcoholic beverages as we possibly could. So we went to Bardenay, we went to before China Blue was there, there was another bar there, and I can't think of the name. We went to Grainy's, we went to Hump and Hannah's. I mean, we, we hit all the classics. And we ended the night at the Big Easy. I don't know how many of you here remember the Big Easy, or as we all called it, the Sleaze. <laughs> it was a great place to end the night. There was a lot of dancing and a, a lot of alcohol. And so I was up on the stage dancing. It was a large thing. I wasn't like up there by myself just dancing, you know, no poles or anything like that. But it was, it was similar to kind of the way this set up. So you could see the people at the dance floor down there, and most of them were looking up this direction. And I saw a very pretty girl dancing with her friend, and we kept making eye contact over a couple of songs, and I was, you know, an excellent dancer. This is not my dancing body. Many years ago, it was much better. <laughs> Uh, and so she, she came up on the stage to dance with me and her friend danced with my brother and we, we danced our asses off for quite a while that night and uh, I, I always laugh about it now. The one song I really remember that we danced to was the Nine Inch Nails song, Closer, which if any of you know, that's a terribly romantic song and it's, you know, it's very moving. And so uh, I, I asked another important question as, you know, we'd been up there for a while. I asked her if she wanted to go step outside, get some fresh air, grab a drink. And she said yes. And so we went out into the lobby and just sat there and, and talked for quite a while. And I learned quite a bit about her. And she learned a little bit about me. And I, uh, I asked her another pretty important question. I asked her if I could have her phone number. And she said yes. And uh, so I walked her out to her car, it was getting pretty late, and uh, came back, met up with all my friends, and we took a cab home, because none of us could drive. And uh, so my friends were all giving me a hard time, asking me, you know, well, how to go, how to go? And I said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. The good news is I got her number. The bad news is she's got four kids. And all my friends were like, ugh. <laughs> you're, 20, you're 23, you don't, you don't want that kind of a headache. I was like, yeah, we'll see. 
So Saturday came and went, didn't call her. Sunday came and went, didn't call her. Monday morning, I'm driving to work, and on my way to work, I'm listening to the radio DJ talk about how, and he, he, couldn't, he couldn't wrap his head around it. He was trying to figure out if, you know, what he was saying is true, but a plane had just flown into one of the Twin Towers in New York. And, and on that drive, I remember thinking to myself, this can't be happening. This has to be a really bad radio story. And got to work, and everybody was just standing in the break room watching the TV and watching this horrific event happen. And the first thing I thought of is that I should call that girl. I don't know why that was the thought that ran through my head, but I, you know, people were reaching out and making connections. They were just, you know, talking to people and making sure that everything was okay. And so I called her, and we talked for a little bit, and I asked her another important question, and I said, do you want to go get a coffee? She said, yeah, let's, let's go get a coffee. At that point in time in my life, I didn't drink coffee. I don't know where I was going with that one, but it seemed, it seemed comfortable. So we went and had a coffee and, and just talked and got to know each other. And that summer that I was just supposed to be there for, you know, a couple of more months turned into four months and then five months. And every moment of that summer I spent with this girl and got to know her kids a little bit. I was 23, what do I know about kids? So we, we did a pretty good job of keeping that life separate. Uh, but the months kind of just kept growing and growing and the next thing I knew I'd been here for a year and went and found an apartment with this group of guys and a little over a year later, we, uh, we were having, my, my now girlfriend at the time and I were having another conversation about you know what should we be doing and another important question came up which was, should we just get a place together? And I had to pump the brakes a little bit at that point in time because, yeah, I, I loved her. She was a fantastic woman and the best thing that ever happened to me, but there was four kids attached to this other side and, and that's, that's a big question to ask. But I, I realized that in the year that we had been together that I had found the love of my life and that with the strength of what our relationship was that we could, we could make it through anything else that was going to happen and I was ready to kind of make that plunge. So we moved in together and a very tiny one-bedroom apartment to start with because it was what we could afford. And we, uh, we were in that apartment for about a year, moved into a bigger apartment, you know, started to kind of build our life together and we went for a walk at Albertsons Park with the kids and I, uh, I was, it's one of the few times in my life I've been genuinely nervous. And I kept feeling my pocket. And I asked the most important question of her at that point in time. And I asked her if she'd marry me. And uh, she said yes. And so we, we let the kids know that, you know, that's what we had decided to do. And uh, what was it? Within about a year, I think. I, I want to say it was about a year. I actually had managed to win a trip for a sales contest to Florida. So we were married on the beach, and it, uh, my life changed so dramatically at that point in time. And, and I realized over the years that I've been with her that one of the, the questions that she never ever asked, and, and it's the only person I've ever dated that was like that, is she never asked me to be anything other than who I was. 
And, and that has been a very important growth you know, part of my life because everyone I've ever known has always asked you to be a little bit different, just a little bit, and sometimes extremely different than who you are. Uh, and, and I've always been so grateful that that wasn't a question that she ever needed to ask or, or felt the need to ask. And so we, we just now have celebrated uh, 13 years of marriage, just earlier this month, and uh, 17 years together total. I have four beautiful kids that have all gone on to college, to BSU and Westminster, and two of them have graduated. One of them is close to graduating, and one is uh, on his way back after taking a semester off. <laughs> and uh, the question I still always find myself asking is, at the end of the day, how did I get to be so lucky? Please welcome Thierry Muel Jao Mayant. Hi everyone, um, thank you so much for coming out tonight. This is terrifying for me because usually when I tell stories, I never have to see the people who are reading them. <laughs> um, but, so when I was in elementary school, um, I was taught that there's no such thing as a stupid question. I was taught that curiosity is always a good thing and that I should never be too afraid to ask any question. But now that I've gotten older, I've given this a lot of thought and I've decided that maybe my elementary school teachers were wrong. Maybe there are some stupid questions. And I know this is very controversial, but I think there are definitely inappropriate times and places to ask certain questions, and there are also really poor, sort of tactless ways to phrase a question. So for example, um, when I was in college in Providence, Rhode Island, I went to a Halloween party, and this guy came up to me, he was a guy I'd never seen or met before, and he said, what are you? I had just spent like two hours in my dorm room putting together my costume, so I was really excited to talk about it. And I said, well, I'm a double rainbow. Like, have you seen that YouTube video that went viral? Or <laughs> there's a double rainbow across the sky and a guy sees it and he gets really emotional, he starts crying, it's really funny. So I was going on and on about this double rainbow, but then the guy interrupted me and he said, no, 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 I mean, what are you? And that's when I realized that he wasn't asking about my costume, but he was asking about my race or ethnicity. And at that point, I felt really disappointed. Um, as an ethnically ambiguous person, I spend a lot of my time explaining my background to other people, often to complete strangers. And at the age of 21, which is how old I was at that point, I was just really bored with doing that. I was really tired of doing it. Um, all the time. And that night at the Halloween party, I just really wanted to talk about double rainbows. I just really wanted to talk about my costume. Um, but instead, I didn't get a chance to do that. Uh, another example, a more recent example, is when I was in Tampa, Florida for a writing conference last month, and I was in this Uber on my way to the convention center with my boyfriend, and I saw the Uber driver taking a good, long look at me in his rearview mirror. 
And then all of a sudden, um, as a complete non sequitur to the conversation that the three of us in the car had been having before, he goes, what's your nationality? And he only asked the question to me. He doesn't ask it to my boyfriend who's sitting in the front. So I say, well, I am a US citizen, so my nationality is American. <laughs> And the Uber driver says, huh, interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that because of your hair and your coloring. So I try not to hold it against people like him um, who make these comments because I really don't think it is an individual sort of problem. I don't even think it's a local problem. Um, I've had people all across America, basically in like every city I've ever lived, ask me variations of this question. Um, what are you? Where are you from? Where are you really from? <laughs> What's your nationality? What's your ethnicity? What's your heritage? Um, do you come from China? Do you come from Vietnam? Are you Latina? Are you Filipina? Are you Indian or Sri Lankan? Because it's just those two choices, right? Um, <laughs> and what kind of Native American are you? Right? These are, I'm not making this up, these are actual questions that I have been asked by complete strangers. And it's usually complete strangers who ask me this question. It's usually men and it's usually European American presenting people. Um, and they come up to me in sort of really public places when I'm minding my own business, like at the park or at the bar with my friends or just even on the street, um, and sometimes they don't even introduce themselves, they don't even say hello, they just like launch right into their question. It's almost as if like by my very existence and presence in this country, I owe them an explanation. The one time that I declined to answer a question like this, um, the person who asked me got really defensive and they said, I don't know why you're being so sensitive or what you're ashamed of. And at the time, I just got, I was just so frustrated and exhausted with dealing with this all the time that I couldn't even answer him. I just broke down in tears, like in the middle of a public plaza in downtown Denver where I live. Um, but I've been thinking about it, and I think if I were to answer this man now, I would say to him that. It's not that I'm ashamed of any part of my identity. I just want to have the agency to be able to present myself to other people on my own terms, when and how I want to, right? I want to be able to like take a walk in the park or go to a bar with my friends or go Christmas shopping at the Christmas market in Denver, which is what I had been doing. Um, I want to be able to ride an Uber or go to a Halloween party and not have to explain my personal background to complete strangers and then have to convince them that I am, in fact, an American. Um, so <laughs> at this point in the story, I'm sure that some of you in the audience are wondering what my ethnicity is. <laughs> and that's OK. You can admit that. Like Sometimes when I see ethnically ambiguous people in the street, especially if they're good looking, I will <laughs> wonder the same thing myself. Right? It's natural for us to be curious. Um, and because for once, like, my ethnicity is actually relevant to the story that I want to tell, um, I am going to share that with you. So my species is Homo sapien. Um, my nationality is American. 
Um, my race, according to what I mark on the US Census, is Asian, although I kind of think that race is a social construct um, that has limited utility. And my ethnicity is Bamar or Burman, which is the majority ethnic group in a country now called Myanmar, which was formerly known as Burma. Now, I, never, I don't remember ever living in Burma because my family left the country when I was a baby. But growing up in exile, um, for a really long time, I sort of imagined that one day when I got older, I would return to Burma and it would be this great homecoming and I'd finally fit in and finally feel like I belonged. So when I got to college, I made an effort to try to make that into a reality. I tried to find a way I could visit Burma. And it wasn't easy at the time because the country was still under a dictatorship, so it wasn't easy to get a visa, et cetera. And I was a college student, so I didn't have money for an expensive plane ticket. But um, there was this fellowship at my university for, for students to spend a summer in Southeast Asia. So I applied for it, and I got it. And at the age of 19, I was finally able to return to Yangon, which is the city where I was born, for the first time as an adult. And I remember sitting in the car on the drive, um, on the drive being picked up from the airport. And I remember looking out my car window at the streets of Yangon and feeling like really excited that for the first time in my life, I was surrounded by people who looked like me, right? But although I thought the people in Yangon looked like me, it soon turned out that they didn't really think that I looked like them. So <laughs> for example, um, when I met my extended family, my third cousin took one look at me and he said, you're the fattest Burmese girl I've ever seen. <laughs> um, and um, anytime I went around the city, whenever I opened my mouth to speak, um, people would ask me, so where are you from? <laughs> you know, which is the same question I had been asked all my life growing up outside of Burma. And so on that trip, I kind of came to the realization that maybe I won't ever fully feel like I belong in a certain place. And for a long time, I sort of grappled with that. But I think I'm finally starting to accept it and to see the positive sides of it. Um, the good thing about not fully belonging anywhere is that I can feel comfortable almost anywhere, honestly. Like, I can fit in and, and talk to many different people. I've lived in Thailand, I've lived in California, I've lived in um, Spain, I've lived in Rhode Island, Indiana, and now I live in Colorado. And I feel, like, capable of packing up and moving to a new city or even a new country at a moment's notice. Like, I feel like I could do that, so that's good. The other thing that I sort of realized is that as much as I want the power to be able to present myself to other people on my own terms, I don't know if that will ever happen in my lifetime. Because I don't think I have the power to control what other people say or do or think. Right? I can't change people's minds about what an American should look like or what an immigrant should look like. And I definitely can't control what questions other people ask me, or when and how they ask. But I also realized that that's OK, because I can control how I respond to these questions. Um, I can come up with more humorous responses, for example. Um, and more importantly, I realized that I do have control over the questions that I ask other people. All right, thank you.
David Lee. Uh, good evening. I wasn't really planning on speaking today, but this story is about something that happened to me th this morning. The last speaker kind of inspired me when she was talking about getting arrested and how it turned out to be a real life awakening event. I had a similar event about seven years ago. I wasn't arrested, but I did have a brain tumor, which as you might imagine, was pretty scary. At the time I was stricken with that, I was just kind of coming out of a, well, I guess you would call it a midlife crisis. Nothing ends a midlife crisis quicker than a potential end-of-life crisis. The nature of brain tumors is somewhat different than other cancers. With other cancers, I think they often say that five years is a sort of a clear mark. Brain cancer is not quite like that. I always have the possibility of something in the future hanging over my head, or growing in my head, as the case may be. As each year goes by, I feel better about it, but I still have to get yearly MRIs. It's gotten to the point where that's pretty routine for me.
I see these words and like I'm okay. I'm good for another year at least. I just had this year's MRI last Monday and I did the usual routine, signed the thing and asked them to send me the report and they said they'd probably get it in the mail the next day so I'm like, okay. So, Tuesday goes by, Wednesday goes by, I check and it's not in the mail. Well, I wasn't worried about it too much. It'll probably show up tomorrow. Thursday, not in the mail. Friday, not in the mail. Saturday, I'm like, okay, well, I, I guess I gotta wait till Monday. So it wasn't there yesterday, but I thought, oh, don't worry about it. And then I went to check the mail today and suddenly, it's amazing how the darkness can take, kind of take over pretty quickly. And I suddenly started to worry. Oh, and by the way, I called the place on Friday and got routed around to some place and left a voicemail that never called me back. And suddenly a dark thought came over my mind and I thought, wait, what if they're not giving it to me because it's bad news and, and they don't want me to know until I see the doctor? What if they're holding it back? And for some reason, within like about an hour's time, that story took a grip on me and I found myself getting kind of grouchy and not quite having post-cancer survivor bliss that I was counting on. And at the same time telling myself, yeah, you're worrying too much, it's ridiculous. Well, it may be ridiculous, but worry works that way. What have I done with my life? Wasted so much time on things that don't Dreams and plans unfinished 
So I decided to go down to the MRI place to kind of see what happened. And I went in and I said, I had an MRI last week. Uh, they were going to send me the report. <clears throat> I still haven't seen it. And whatever the reasons were for why they hadn't sent it, they said that they could print the report for me right there. So I was kind of nervous waiting for it. And she comes and uh, hands me one page. Oh, and I said, it's only one page. Uh, and I'm like, well, they're usually longer than that. Uh, it, it, it's only one page? <sighs> she goes, yeah. So I go, okay. And just in case it was bad news, I didn't want to read it right there. So I, I stepped out to my car and I'm reading the usual technical language here. And looking for those magic words. I'm reading through the whole page. And I was like, wait! I didn't see the words I was looking for. What I did see at the end of the page was Page one of two. So I, I went back in and I told the receptionist and she goes, oh, our printer must have run out of paper. So she printed it and uh, handed me the second page. Oh, thank you which just had a couple of lines on it, but I got right to the end, and it had the words I needed. No evidence of recurrent neoplasm. What will I do?
Story Night is brought to you by our story party, Amy Moran, Karis Kimball, Hannah Mae Schaefer, Karen Moore, Marnie Ellis, Bob Haycock, and me, Jody Eichelberger. We receive support from the Boise Arts and History Department. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Group Real Estate, and the question mark show sponsors, Al Blank, Marianne Morrison, and Yoga for Good. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guests were Lita Harris-Newstetter, Thomas Paul, and J. Todd Dunnigan. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Story Story Night. Mm-hmm.